Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Genesis 34. Just want to make a brief comment before we read this section of God's Word about the, uh, how momentous it is that Walter has reported uh, this woman, Allah, has uh, come to faith in Christ, that they have ministered in that country for 20 years, maybe 25 years, I'm not certain. They've been there a very long time. And um, they have uh, been working in various capacities, even as we prayed about earlier, and they have seen very, very few converts to Christ in that region. And so it's always amazing when God saves a sinner. It's always a wonderful act, even as we uh, talked about last week, the power of God in uh, taking that dead uh, person, that spiritually dead person, and making, making him or her alive in Christ and uh, and placing that person in Christ such that um, he now has eternal life, she now has eternal life. That is the power of God at work. It's amazing and it's wonderful. And anytime we see it, it is encouraging to us. And anytime uh, we think about our own conversion, we ought to uh, be aware of the, the, the amazing power of God at work to bring that about. And it's a wonderful thing. And particularly for ministers who have been laboring in a tough field for 25 years and seeing so little uh, fruit, how encouraging it must be for them to, uh, to have uh, Allah come to faith in Christ and, and, uh, and her son there with her, and they, have, um, they commute two hours on a Sunday to get to church, and then they'll turn around and go back home, and they're just that, um, God is working in their heart to that extent that they're so excited, so pleased that... Uh, um, that they just want to be with God's people on the Lord's day. So what an encouragement. I, I just didn't want to let that pass, knowing Walter and, and Sonia, knowing the, the um, uh, struggle that they've had over the years with that exact thing. We want to praise God for that. We turn to Genesis 34, and I'm going to read not the whole chapter, but just the first few verses here. Listen now as I read the inspired, inerrant Word of our God. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. 
Father, we pause this morning to come into Your presence corporately. We have sung to You and, and had our, our minds and our hearts lifted to You in song. We've encouraged one another in the truths that we've sung. We have lifted up our voices in, uh, in song and in prayer as we have lifted needs that are near to us, that are far from us, things that are massive and on a global scale as well as smaller things right down to the human heart, which is your domain. And Father, as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would be at work by your spirit, that even as Stephen said, if, if I speak and your spirit does not work, we accomplish nothing in these next few minutes. And so we ask that you by your spirit would do a work in our hearts, even as we look at this difficult passage in uh, Genesis 34, as we read about Dinah and what she went through, and then the response of Jacob and, and the brothers, and we ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom and insight. We pray that in this time, Christ Jesus, our Lord, would be lifted up, that you would do a work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are passages in Scripture that as you are well aware, uh, are very uplifting. And you read them when you are down, and they encourage you. And they lift your heart and your mind to the Lord, and they just encourage you about how He has worked in a given situation, and about the beauty of His grace and His mercy. And this chapter is not like those chapters. If you read in advance, which we encourage you to do, and that's why we send out that uh, weekly email telling you what chapter we're going to be talking about. And by the way, if you don't get those emails, please um, email the church and, and give them your address uh, so that we can get you on the list, uh, pbf at cub.net, and we will get you on that list. Uh, but this chapter here, as you read in preparation, uh, you probably thought, now what is he going to say about that? <laughs> how, is, how is this passage going to be handled? Well, this, this chapter is a difficult one, and it shows us the painful realities of the dangers and the failures of God's people living in a strange land. And so we can, we can see uh, a little bit of ourselves even in this chapter. We start off there, you have an outline in your bulletin, and the first section that, that I read is about harm to a woman, harm that is done to a woman, Dinah. And uh, it seems like she probably was a teenager. She almost certainly was not older than that. And we have this situation where she uh, is mistreated. She's actually taken hostage, and she's, she's brought in. She's seduced, and, and, uh, um, and Shechem has his way with her, and, and it's an awful story. And to understand kind of the background of what uh, this must be like, not just uh, sexual violence like this, not just uh, that act itself, but, but even this region that they're in right now, we... we when we think about Canaan, we think about the Canaanites, the people who lived in that region, we know that there was a, they were known for their sexual immorality. That uh, even as we looked uh, a long time ago at, at chapter 19 and we saw uh, Lot and his time in Sodom and Gomorrah, and there were a lot of things going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and among them was great sexual perversion. And, uh, and that was 
uh, so bad, and their sin was so bad. There were other sins as well, but their sin was so bad that they were judged in spectacular fashion. Well, the rest of the place will not be judged quite in such spectacular fashion, but if you will now keep your finger there in Genesis 34, and you will go over to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. Now, keep in mind, it's the same author who is writing this Genesis 34 passage as writes uh, Leviticus 18 and, and really the rest of the Pentateuch, Moses. And so he, uh, he knows these facts. He knows uh, what's going on here when he writes Genesis 34, and they are meant to be connected. But what's fascinating when we read about this, Leviticus being, being written to a people who are in the wilderness. Remember, they've left Egypt. So we're uh, flash-forwarding from Genesis 34 uh, and the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how the the nation is first formed, and then it goes down into Egypt to finish the book of Genesis. And of course, Exodus starts with the people hundreds of years later. Now they are in Egypt and they are captive. And of course, uh, with, with Moses, God, God's mighty hand, uh, God brings them out of Egypt and they are in the wilderness. They receive the law and all of this. They're being, they're being given their law. They're being taken through the wilderness. And an explanation of those laws, we read this in Leviticus 18. Now remember, the people have come out of Egypt and they're headed towards a land. They're headed towards the land of Canaan, the promised land. They're going to go in and they're going to take it over. They're going to drive out or kill those people who are inhabiting the land, that is the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the, all, all those, those people who are living right there. And what do we read about them? We read here in Leviticus chapter 18, a chapter that is a difficult one uh, just because it spells out in such painful detail unlawful sexual relations. We read in verse 3, "'You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt.'" where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. That there's, there are things practiced in the land of Canaan that Moses, uh, God through Moses is warning His people to be on your guard and don't be like them. Skip down to verse 24. He spells out in great detail there various types of sexual immorality, but he gets down to verse 24, and he says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things that he's just spelled out. For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. You see the language there that uh, and, and we could go on and multiply that. We could look uh, later on in chapter 20. He revisits the same uh, stuff there in, in Leviticus, pointing out that these people in the land of Canaan are known for their sexual perversion. It, it, it's so bad that they, the, it, it, he uses the language of the land vomiting them out. The land has become unclean. The land, as it were, doesn't even want them to be there anymore. These, these peoples in the land of Canaan are perverse they're not just pagans. They're notorious pagans. They're not just notorious pagans, but they're notorious for their sexual perversion. And so there's a very great difficulty. Uh, there's a very great presence of this sexual immorality in the land. And so go back to Genesis chapter 34. 
knowing that about the land, knowing that about the people who inhabit the land, that this is, this is the nature of uh, these people. This is what the, the lands are, are, are like there, what the peoples are like in this land. Then we go back to verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. This would be like if you uh, moved to uh, some new city and you you unknowingly or whatever uh, rented an apartment right next to the red light district. And then you, you sent your teenage daughter to go hang out with the women who live in the red light district. This is kind of what uh, Jacob has done here. This is kind of what has happened. And so I think uh, even just thinking about the fact that she goes out there and it seems like she's on her own, she goes out to spend time with the women of the land. Jacob shouldn't have let her do that. If you, if you accidentally rented a place uh, right next to the red light district, you shouldn't send your children over there. Right? Yeah, you might do some kind of missions work and you might do those things, but you would do so cautiously and you would be careful. And Jacob was incautious and Jacob was foolish in allowing her, a young girl, to go into this region. I remember when I first moved to Chicago. I may have told this story, forgive me if I have. First moved to Chicago and, and uh, being a country kid and, and growing up on a farm, I kind of wanted to have my bearings and so I just went for a walk and not realizing what Chicago's really like. And I went out at night to go for a walk to explore and, uh, and kind of get my bearings and whatnot. And now looking back, knowing where the school is located and knowing what the surrounding neighborhoods are like, I was putting my life at risk by going for a walk in the night uh, in these areas. And that's a little bit what has happened here with Jacob allowing Dinah to go uh, and visit the people. He was, he was greatly at fault for letting her go, and she was foolish in going. She shouldn't have done so. And so I think there's a, a point of application before we move on uh, in this text here, and that is that we need to be wise to the dangers of the world and not be foolhardy. She was a little foolhardy, and certainly Jacob was foolhardy in letting her go. We need to be aware of the dangers of this world. And secondly, parents, train your children so that they are aware of the dangers of the world and the ways the world will seek to threaten them and, and, and eat them alive. And folks, you and I, who, who have children who are school age, grew up in a different time. We do not understand. We have not experienced for ourselves the, the threats that exist in the world around us. They're different than when we were kids. There was, there was threat and there was uh, danger and there was all kinds of sin to get into and all kinds of uh, trouble and danger and stuff like that to get into, but it has changed. The temperature has been raised. And you need to be aware uh, and you need to make your children aware of the dangers that are out there to them so that they're not... Uh, going blindly out into the world like me walking around Chicago foolishly. Help your children to understand uh, what temptation looks like. Help your children to understand how to think through difficult issues. And that's going to take some research on your part because it's not like what you remember. I graduated from high school over 30 years ago. Seems like yesterday. And the world has changed a lot in that time. 
So we need to be wary. We need to help our children to be wary. Not that they go through life scared of everything, but they've got to be aware. They've got to know their surroundings so that they don't do like me and go, go walking around in, in uh, places that are going to get them in, in trouble and, and perhaps even in harm's way. So we see harm to a woman. She is, she's raped, and then Shechem is not, uh, he's not a normal guy. Here he, he, he has violated her, he's harmed her, but, but he keeps her and he loves her and wants to marry her. So he goes and he talks to his dad and, uh, and, and, and says, get her uh, for me as a wife. And then uh, together they're going to go and talk to Jacob. And Jacob hears about it, but his sons are out in the field, so he's quiet. He's not going to do anything about it right now. And then finally the sons come back and now we're going to deal with it. And we see that not only is there harm to a woman in the first paragraph, but in the second one there is threat to a people. Threat to a people, starting in verse 8 and, and following in this next paragraph, moves from harm done to a woman, a, a young girl, and it's awful and it's terrible and there ought to be justice and there ought to be punishment and, and, and Shechem ought to be brought up on charges and it all ought to be resolved and all of those things. But, but the threat moves from just a threat to and danger to this, this young woman and that's bad enough, but now it comes to a threat to the entirety of the people. There's a threat of something that would endanger the whole people of God, and that's intermarriage with the pagan world. That's a threat that goes just beyond an individual and goes to the entirety of the people of God. We pick up the story in verse 8, but Hamor spoke with them, the, the sons of Jacob, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Intermarry. And this is not just uh, trying to make peace. Perhaps, perhaps from uh, Hamor's perspective that is the case, but think about who he's talking to, the people of God. And he's proposing intermarriage. You shall dwell with us, he continues in verse 10, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. He's offering him the place. You get to live here. You can become one of us. You can have the run of the place. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor. So this is the offender. Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. He is so motivated. He really, really wants Dinah to be his wife. He's willing to, to give whatever they ask. There's no, there's no recognition here that he's done wrong in forcing himself upon her. There's no recognition of any kind of repentance or uh, coming to faith or anything at all like that, but he does want for there to be peace, and most importantly in his mind, he wants to make sure that he gets to marry Dinah. We continue in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They're angry, and you can understand they would be angry. And so the answer that they give to uh, this initial request or this offer from uh, Hamor and Shechem is to deceive. They're so mad, they're, they've got a plan. We continue in verse 14. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. 
for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And so they up the ante and say, well, we can't just marry as is because all of you are uh, uncircumcised and that's an important thing to us. So um, you need to become circumcised in order for us to enter into this agreement. When Abraham had first come to the land, We're dealing with his great-grandchildren here. When Abraham had first come to the land, he came with his wife Sarah, whom he had gotten in the east, right, in Ur of the Chaldees. Isaac, like, uh, like his father, likewise got his wife from the east, from the region of, of Haran, not from Canaan. Remember, Abraham, when he was old, sent the servant back to Haran. Don't take a wife from here. Go to Haran. And get a wife from among our people there and bring her back. And so, indeed, he did. So Isaac got his wife from the same place. Jacob himself had also gotten his wives from the east, from Haran, and not from Canaan. And you remember what what happened when Esau went and married uh, women from, from Canaan. They were a constant source of vexation to his parents. Intermarrying with the people of the land has never been an option for the patriarchs. They can't do it. They must not do it. And so why is this something that they would even propose in this way? Now, we do read in verse 13 that they're, they're being deceitful. They're trying to trick Shechem and Hamor. And so, um, yes, that's true that that's the case. But what, if, what if something goes wrong with their plan? You know, you, you start down the road thinking, I'm going to take a detour at the last moment. I'm going to um, pretend that this is what's going to happen, but then I'm going to change it at the end. And what happens if they can't change it at the end, and now they've made these promises, now they've made these covenants, now they've agreed with the people, we're going to intermarry. What if they can't stop all that from happening and they end up intermarrying? What would be the consequence to the people of God? What would ha- happen to Jacob and his family? Well, the answer is they would, they would no longer be set apart for God. They've been set apart. They're an unusual people. They're, they're strangers. They're, they're aliens in this land, and they're supposed to be that way. But they would no longer be that way. They would be intermarried. They would be mingled in. They would be just like the Shechemites. They would no longer be set apart. They would no longer be holy. What they proposed, if it were to come to pass, would mean that Israel would lose its distinctiveness. It would no longer be a separate people, no longer be a strange people in the land. Israel would become just like all the other peoples of the land. And so the proposition that the brothers are making here, even though it involves a stipulation of of them being circumcised and all the proposition that they're making, if it were to actually happen, is a threat to the very people of God, to the very holiness that God has called them to. What a danger. They're, They're walking a thin line. 
We continue in verse 18. Their words pleased Hamer and Hamer's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamer and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of, this, of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. They agreed to do it, and they turn and they speak very convincingly to their people. Yes, you're going to have to undergo this uh, painful and strange operation, and, and yes, it's going to be difficult, but look, the reward is going to be great because won't we get rich from this? We will, we will get to have their stuff. We will be one people, and we will benefit from this. You see, they are selling it to their very own people. What a dangerous, dangerous place the sons of Jacob have put themselves in. There is risk to their family, and there is risk to a future. Verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Now, the Bible uh, does speak about the death penalty, and there are times to execute the death penalty in Scripture, particularly for kidnapping, uh, for murder, and for some other things. But the person who committed the crime is the one, in those cases, when found guilty, who is to die. Well, we're going to see that Shechem dies, and Hamor dies, and every man in the place dies. What an overreach. What a, what a, what a, a travesty that these men have done. Yes, I understand being angry and wanting to execute the offender. I understand that fully. I understand even seeing it through and executing the offender. I get that. They executed every man in the place, killed all the males. They killed Hamer, verse 26, and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. See, she had been kidnapped as well. So they kill Hamer, they kill Shechem. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They came there and not only did they kill the men, but they plundered the entire city. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. This is not just an eye for an eye, is it? This is not justice, is it? This is vengeance upon the entirety of the people. This is going overboard, and that's what uh, the sons have done being led by Levi and Simeon. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink 
to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they, the sons, answered, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And thus ends the chapter. What a risk to the future. Not only risk in the sense of intermarriage and and the danger that could have come from that, they they dodged that and that was their plan to dodge that. But now, with the action that they've taken, you see the danger that they brought upon the entirety of their people. That now the surrounding people will have reason to be suspicious of this small band of God's people. Because they murdered an entire town, the men at least, and they stole everything else. And Jacob's aware that Boy, if the people of the land catch wind of this, and if they decide to band together and come against me, there's no way I can survive that. You just got us killed, sons. What a a risk to the future. God has promised to protect Jacob and give him offspring like the sand of the sea, but Jacob's lack of control over his sons... He's the dad. He should have been in control of this situation. And their lack of control over their desire for vengeance have really put God to the test. They've put their future at risk. And there's an interesting early consequence of this risk in the lives of Simeon and Levi, or at least in the lives of their offspring. Go to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, you have Jacob's last words. He's blessing his sons. Uh, He's giving prophecies, essentially, concerning his sons. Now, remember, who were the two sons who were the ringleaders of of the the pillaging and and the murder that happened at Shechem? It was Simeon and Levi. Look at verse 5, chapter 49 of Genesis, verse 5. Again, last words, prophetic last words from, from Jacob to his sons. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob never forgot this. Jacob never forgot the danger that his two sons put their whole family in, the actions that they took. And so he says, I will scatter them among the people of Israel. They will be scattered. Now, it's interesting to note the tribe of Levi, throughout the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament, the tribe of Levi, they're the ones who serve at the the tabernacle, they serve at the temple, right? They don't have their own land, There is no tribal inheritance like there is for Judah or like there is for Benjamin. There isn't one for Levi. So he's scattered among the people. The tribe of Levi is scattered among the people not having their own inheritance because the Lord is their inheritance. It's very interesting how they get scattered and it actually ends up being a kind of a blessing because of the way the Lord reverses fortune. But what happens to Simeon? The same exact prophecy is given. It's it's the same sentence, the same breath. And what happens to the tribe of Simeon? 
Well, they're allotted a little piece of land, but then as time goes on, that piece of land shrinks, and that piece of land gets given to Judah, and they dissolve into the rest of the people. They scatter, but in a way of judgment. But Jacob never forgot what his two sons did in uh, supposed defense of their daughter. What, what a chapter. That's the way it ends. That's the whole story of this chapter. The danger you know, Jacob's family have, in, have encountered at Shechem, they've they posed serious and considerable threat to God's people. And then we move on to a different story where God says to Jacob, move on to Bethel and dwell there, and the story continues. But why Shechem? What can we learn from Shechem? Well, a couple of things before we end our time. First of all, we've already pointed out the application that we need to be wise to the dangers of the world, right? We need to be wary of that. Jacob and his sons and his daughter walked into this situation and caused a big, uh, a big problem and, and, and suffered the consequences, especially Dinah suffered those consequences. But secondly, what's the second point of application that we can draw from this? Now remember, in understanding this, trying to interpret what this means, we need to remember that it's, it's in the context of all of Genesis, and it's being written to a people who are going into the land to take over the land. Remember, the people who were in the land, who had been there before the Canaanites, were being spewed out, were being destroyed because of their sexual immorality. And this is a story that's kicked off by sexual immorality, sexual perversion. And so I think our point of application is to beware lust. Beware sexual immorality. Shechem's lust drove him to seduce and rape Dinah. Then it led to him agreeing to have all the men around his people, or among his people, circumcised. And what did that lead to? That led to them being sore and susceptible to attack from Simeon and Levi and the boys and killed all the men. Shechem's lust got them killed. Sexual, sexual immorality had been a problem in a number of places already in Genesis, as we've been reading, but, but Shechem here could be the poster boy. The great John Owen has a memorable, memorable instruction for us. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We need to understand the battle that is involved in sexual immorality. We need to understand the battle that is going on here in the area of lust. We need to beware lust. We need to get rid of it. We need to identify what it is. We need to bring someone alongside of us who can help us in that area, someone who can uh, help us to be accountable, someone who can help to encourage us, someone who can speak to us when we are weak, someone who can encourage us when we've failed, someone who can celebrate when we've been victorious, someone who can help us look to the Lord for strength from Him by His Spirit to gain victory in this area. It seems like a little thing. It seems like, well, no one, no one really sees it. No, really, no one really uh, knows what's going on, and, and surely there's no victim. Until there is. And Dinah's that victim. And not only Dinah, the entire city of Shechem falls because of Shechem's lust. 
The consequences Dinah and all the city of Shechem faced were immediate, immediately obvious and awful. The consequences of unmortified lust in your life will probably not be as immediate, as immediately obvious, but they will nevertheless be awful. Identify your lust for what it is and kill it and let Shechem be an example to us. There's another point of application that we will get to that concerns the Lord's Supper. But before we move to that, there was no hero in this chapter. Hamer was too heavily influenced by a son he should have trained better. Shechem himself was a slave to his sexual lusts. Jacob was passive in protecting his daughter and in defending her when the time came and reigning in his sons as well. Jacob's sons responded to the assault on their sister, perhaps, perhaps from good motives. Perhaps from good motives. But when they killed all the men of the whole town, they showed that they were after revenge by their actions. They were entirely out of proportion in their response to the crime that had been committed. And even poor Dinah, the clear victim in the story, she should have should have known better than to leave the protection of her people and go visiting amongst people so infamous for their sexual immorality and perversion. There is no good guy in this story. There's no hero in this story. This episode points to the real and the perpetual danger that exists to God's people of their intermingling with the world. Again and again, the nation of Israel and the New Testament church are told by God, Be holy, set apart, separate unto me, for I am holy. Folks, God has graciously saved His people from their sins and saved them for a life directed towards Him. We read in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Did you hear the purpose? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We've been saved from sin and for service to God, for Him Though Israel did not, in fact, intermarry with the people of Shechem and become like them in that way, by their, nevertheless, by their bloodthirsty, murderous vengeance and plundering of the entire city, they showed that they were much like the nations around them in many, many other ways. And, of course, that will, will be Israel's story for the rest of the Old Testament. Sure, some things distinguish them from the Gentiles. Circumcision, for example, dietary laws, the temple. Those things kept them distinct in some ways, but they often ended up worshiping the Gentile gods. They were oppressive to the poor. Sometimes they even sacrificed their children to the pagan god Moloch. It becomes clear in the history of Israel that they're not getting better. They're not becoming holier. Something different would have to be done. God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that blessing was to go through them to all the families of the earth. Clearly, they're not going to accomplish that on their own, are they? They are headed the wrong direction for that. God is going to have to do it Himself. And that's been God's plan all along. From the beginning, back in Genesis 3, He told Adam and Eve that He was going to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. 
and the works of the serpent. That he was going to send the seed to do that. But Abraham wasn't that seed, though the seed would come through him. And Isaac wasn't that seed, though he would be in his line. And Jacob wasn't the seed, though he would spring from among his people. None of Jacob's sons was to be the seed either. We've seen their actions proving themselves not to be that seed that rather than being the one crushing the enemy, they, 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 are, they are murderous and crushing other people. No, the blessing that comes all the way to you and to me in this day and age is to come through another. It's the blessing that only Christ gives. He's the descendant of Abraham. He's the descendant of Isaac and of Jacob and of Judah and of David. He is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. That seed finally come for us who came in the flesh to pass the test that Adam failed, to obey God where Abraham had not, Isaac had not, Jacob had not. Certainly Simeon and Levi, even Judah, had not. David won't, but Jesus does it for us, obeys God perfectly, passes the test that Adam had failed and gives his life to pay the penalty for our sins by his death on the cross. There is no hero in this story. But this is only a part of the story that points us forward. We look at our own lives and so often we think, there's not really a hero in my story either. I'm certainly not him. I fail again and again. And I look around me and I have people who love me around me and they're wonderful, and they're not the hero of my story either. They're, they're, they're doing the best they can. They're, they're, they're good people. They're uh, wonderful people. I'm glad to have in my life, but they are not the hero of my story. There is not one on this plane. The hero of our story is the seed who came, the one who finally does obey God and obeys Him perfectly, the one who who takes upon himself the punishment for not, my not having obeyed God. And thus, by what he has accomplished, not by anything Jacob or Simeon and Levi or Judah or any of them accomplished, but by what Jesus has accomplished, we get to have life. That blessing promised to Abraham, repeated to Isaac and Jacob, comes to you and me and Jesus. And so, we come to the Lord's Supper. If I could have the men who are going to serve come forward, please. We celebrate the Lord's Supper as He commanded us to do. And we have here in these elements present representation of the body and the blood of Christ. That we have the bread representing His body, pointing us to the fact that He gave His own life for us, that He was broken, that He hung on the tree in our place that we might have life, that He took death so that we could have life. And we and see the cup here representing His blood, representing, as He says, the blood of the new covenant for us, that He has obeyed God in our place, that He has paid the penalty in our place, and He gives us the credit for that. And more than that, He gives us a new heart, taking out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, crediting to us the righteousness of Christ so that we have right standing before God because of what Jesus did. By faith in what Christ did, 
We get to have life and right standing before Him, and He's given us a new heart that now wants to obey, wants to walk with God. This is that new covenant blessing that we have in Christ. And so if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, and these things are, are confusing to you, these things are new, or, or you just don't believe them, let, let the elements pass. And think about what we've said this morning. Come talk to me afterwards that, uh, that we could talk about this. But if, if you're a Christian, this is for you. And this is a time where we come and don't just have a little snack or don't just have a time in our service that's a little ritual. This is a celebration of Christ's sacrifice and work on our behalf. And so let's keep that in mind. First, we come to the bread. Men, if you would take up the bread, please. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and the elements are going to be passed around, the bread will be passed around, and I would encourage you during that time, it's going to take a few minutes for that to happen, be reflecting Be reflecting about your own need for a Savior, the presence and reality of your own sin. And and you have it, and I have it. And here, as we bring it before God, we we don't confess our sin just to put ourselves in a low place so that we can feel bad. We want to recognize the reality of our sin. And when we bring it to God and we confess it to Him and ask for His forgiveness, He forgives us. Because that penalty has been paid as represented in this bread that is passed. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, our Savior, because we recognize in our own lives that on this plane, I am certainly not the hero of my story. I am certainly not the hero of my chapter. That all too often I just see my need May we all see our need. May even those who walked in this morning not believing in Christ see their need even now as they think about their own guilt, as they think about their own guilt before you, perhaps even in this area of lust and sexual immorality, that they would recognize that that is abhorrent to you, that they would recognize that it is sin, that it deserves eternal judgment from a holy God. And recognizing that, may they turn to Jesus and see in Him the one who has lived righteously and given His life as a sacrifice to pay that penalty that if they will trust in Jesus, believing in Him alone, they will find their sin taken away. They will find the penalty of it paid in the person of Christ on the cross. And we who have our sin and recognize it We confess it to you and pray that you would forgive us and that you would direct our eyes off of our sin and onto our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you would take up the cup, men. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So I'm going to pray in a moment, then we're going to pass the cup. Spend that time, if you would, rejoicing and praising God for the life that you get to have in Christ because of what He has accomplished. That it is not dependent upon you, He has accomplished it. And so we have life and we can rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus' blood of the new covenant, instituting that covenant for us. He has obeyed. He has paid the penalty. And He gives us the credit for it, that we have right standing with You because of what our Savior has done. And it's ours by faith in Him. We rejoice in Jesus our Savior, and we pray in His name. Amen.
Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul concludes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christian, this, this is a wonderful time to remind you that if you uh, are a Christian, you trust in Christ, what that means is because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf, because of the life of righteousness he lived on your behalf that we have just celebrated, because of that, your sins are forgiven. Don't walk out of here with them on your shoulder. They have been forgiven in Christ. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, and, and then we will be concluded. I will remind you that after the prayer, I will be up front. I would love to answer any questions or talk to you. Maybe, maybe uh, this is the first time, perhaps, that you've heard this gospel message, or maybe you have questions about Jesus. I'd love to talk to you. I'll be standing up here um, waiting for you. Uh, for that, there will be a family as well up front who would love to pray with you. As well, I would encourage you, this is the Sunday of the month where we take our benevolence offering, and there's a box in the back right there for that purpose, uh, whether it's our general benevolence, which helps out uh, people in the community, uh, people here in the church particularly, who have financial need, or if it's uh, the one for Rwanda and uh, Pastor Theophily, please uh, designate that so and put that in the box uh, back there. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we rejoice in what we have read today, not because uh, not because it's a, a story of a great faith and victory or, uh, or anything like that, but because we can relate to it in so many ways that, that, that we are like the people in that story, that we are not the hero, that we demonstrate again and again in our lives our lack and our need, and we are so grateful for Jesus, our Savior, who is our hero, who is that one who has lived righteously, who is himself holy, who has given himself as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, whom you raised from the dead and who is even now seated at your right hand in the heavenlies, interceding for us. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. May we go forth in joy in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.